Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. In the middle of a worldwide financial crash, terrible weather, and a threatened tube strike. Threatened tube strike. Congratulate yourself. Congratulations for coming. Yes. Allow yourselves a very brief round of applause. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Now, I was just going to start by saying that in 1979, when I was working for New Music Express, I was taken on a press trip um, in a van up to uh, Birmingham to see a new splinter group break off from the motors. If in any way this is boring, just say so. <laughs> Stay with it, called Bram Tchaikovsky's Battle Axe. Who saw, who's seen, <laughs> who seen in this room saw Bram Tchaikovsky's Battle Axe? Just, I so did. Just, just me and him, yeah. Anyway, on the bus, if I remember right, it was Kelly Pike from the Record Mirror. I think Chris Needs from Zigzag. Yeah, definitely. And this thirsty teenage uh, uh, rebel and gunslinger from Sounds. Now, I then had to sit back for the next 35 years and watch him become Sounds and Kerrang's star writer and the presenter, in fact, of Monsters of Rock. I hope you notice that we've got... Do you know Monsters of Rock? Do you remember Monsters of Rock always had a sort of palm tree behind you? Well, just, just to bring back gra- the happy gra- memories. Gravestones and palm gravestones trees. Gravestones and palm trees. Anyway, well, here he is, and still writing, still broadcasting, and the author of many books, the latest of which is the fantastic Get Your Rocks Off, uh, Sex in Excess, Bust Ups and Binges, uh, life and Death on the Rock and Roll Road. That's quite a long title. That's, the, yeah, that's, that's almost the anyway, whole book that's there. That's the whole book. I've just given the, given the ending away. Actually, Please welcome the fantastic Mick Wall. <laughs> Actually, my first question would be, can you remember anything about the uh, Bram Tchaikovsky's Battle Axe? Actually, I'd conven- conveniently forgotten all of that until you usefully reminded me. Yes. And then, of course, I had to hide in shame because... Uh, the crucial detail you forget is that just a short time after that, I became Bram Tchaikovsky's PR. Oh, we, oh, oh right. You're that's kidding. why you all remember him, because of all those amazing covers. <laughs> that's right, yes. <laughs> Indeed, you were. Now, look, another traditional question is, what, what was the music that you were listening to when you grew up? Before you started... Yeah, what, what, was, the, what, what was, was playing in your house? What sort of... Did you have a record player when you were growing up? Think back to when you were a child. I'm just trying <laughs> to get an idea well, here. Uh, uh, well, uh, why this is a good question is because, uh, because I'm the rock writer, people still... At dinner parties today, I'll meet someone at a dinner party, and they'll say... You know, you and I have got a lot in common. And I go, really? And he say, yeah, I'm an Iron Maiden fan too. <laughs> and I go, oh, fuck. You know. But um, I ended up writing about this stuff, A, because I liked Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and all that stuff. But what I was mainly listening to was just like the rest of you, was Bowie and the Beatles and Dylan in particular 
Um, you know, I, I, I came of age in terms of buying albums in the very early 70s. So it was Rod Stewart, it was Elton John, it was very much... What was the house like? Have you got a music centre or have you got a stereo or is there a... No, no, there, it's, it's, a, it's a mono box with a lid right. in my room. Uh, and I remember buying Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie, like my second album that I bought with my own money. And it had on the back, to be played at maximum volume. Well, it, it says it right here. So I used to play it at maximum volume. And, of course, my mother, my father, the neighbours, I mean, you know, turn that bloody rubbish down. But the tie-in comes with the fact that my father was a musician. Uh, he used to play Irish music, Scots music. And some of my earliest memories are being literally woken up as a four- or five-year-old and brought down in the middle of the night after he and his band had come back from some gig, quite often at some of those Chiswick pubs, you were just yes. telling me about, Mark, and the Hole in the Wall, the Pack Horse, Barlimo, and, um, and they would sit around playing these um, traditional folk instruments and singing rebel songs and telling filthy jokes. But then about three or four in the morning, you know, it would die down and they would start to tell stories. And, and that was what got me into writing about rock music, because by the time I began writing for sounds punk was everything so my we've first review was of the lurkers i think we've got to hear it was a, this is, uh, a, this is the cover of sounds in 1977 this is what i aspired to in 1977 but never got close to that's obviously the clash very young looking clash yeah uh, but i was very much the lurkers end of the staff <laughs> uh, a niche area that i covered Quite extensively, actually. I just, I just noticed his cover line. Sorry, this great. It says Genesis feel goods glue. I presume that's not a group, is it? It's just glue. Come on. These days it would be a cover in. mount, wouldn't yeah, it? Would it? Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's worth just dwelling on this for a second because you know I worked for the NME and Sounds and so forth around this time, and and they, there was always a strict hierarchy, wasn't there, in who oh, yeah. you could cover? Yeah, you, you wouldn't have got near the Clash. No. Because they would have had, I don't know, John Savage or whoever. Absolutely, Doing, yeah. doing the Clash, you yeah. know. And everybody had their pet bands, didn't they? And so the way people got on, generally, was by discovering their own pet groups. Is it, that, is it, that it, the case? It, it's true, but sounds were chronically bad at it. For instance, um, you know, in the NME, you know, you would have Paul Morley or Tony Parsons, and they had their thing. But I remember on sounds, our reggae writer was a guy called Eric Fuller. And I remember when the Brixton riots occurred in the early 80s, we had this editorial meeting. We said, well, you know, we really should cover something about the riots, the kids, the black kids. And Eric went, uh, nothing will come of it. The odd, the odd single bomb, bomb, diddly. <laughs> and we all went, oh, all right then, you know. And then the next week, enemy, the cover, the riots, you know, and sell out issue, you know. When, when Bob Marley got ill, we famously... Ran a, the week he died, we ran a fa the enemy ran a beautiful cover. Bob ne Robert Nestor Marley it was classic. We ran a news story saying he was on the mend, <laughs> but but glue was back. <laughs> yeah, probably. Who were the writers? Trying to remember the writers. Well. Was Dave McCullough? Was it Gary Bushell? Uh, would, uh, did anybody uh, read Sounds at this time? I'm sure you did. There must be somebody here. Yes, I mean there was no one read Sounds. <laughs> they just looked at the pictures. No, no, people did, they, for a while they had a very good team. In the late 70s it was Jane Suck, uh, John Savage, uh, Giovanni Dodomo, Pete Mikowski did the heavy metal, he was a very funny writer. But then it got into the kind of Dave McCulloch with the must-cover-the-young bands and, uh, and Sandy Robertson with his L.A. West Coast thing and Gary, of course, with Oi Oi and Punk. Which kind of single-handedly destroyed punk overnight, and heralded in an era of the biggest oafs the music business has ever seen. But bizarrely, was wildly yeah. successful for sounds. Yeah. You know, no, uh, it was. Now, you very early on, you, there's an amazing. In fact, it's before you start at sounds. I think when you're backstage at a party through. Is it through Pete? I think it is. He through invites, Pete, yeah. Through Pete. He invites you to a Thin Lizzy backstage party. Yeah, yeah. Which Johnny Rotten is present. He's not, not even in a group, I think, at the time. And it's, 
it's before the whole thing starts out. But there's a lot about Thin Lizzy throughout the book. And so, well, why, and the book is also full of tremendous, apart from very amusing and disgraceful stories, great theories, actually, and, and great insights. You know, yeah, you feel very fond of, of, of Phil. Is it Lionet or Linnet? I can never remember. Lionet. Lionet, yeah. Lionet, yeah. Now, uh, well... <sighs> Uh, it's weird, you know, you start writing about these bands and, and when I started out, I remember the re- reviewers saying to me, was there anybody you'd like to write about? And I was like, absolutely, The Stones, uh, Dylan. And he said, well, there's a group called The New Hearts doing The Red Cow in Hammersmith <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, it's Tuesday night. You know. um, uh, the point being that you don't often get to work with the people you genuinely loved when you were a young album buyer before you became a reviewer. But Lizzie were the exception, and uh, for me, and and so I went to see a, a, an actual rock critic friend of mine took me to see them. I loved it. I went to the backstage party. I couldn't believe my eyes. Um, it was like going through into the the, the cartoon bit of uh, Jessica, meeting Jessica Rabbit. You know, it was. I couldn't believe what was going on. There was George Best and Alex Higgins and Page Three Girls and. And I'm standing there, you know, just staring at Lina as Pete just, you know, chats to him in that set, like Bob Harris in that 70s. Oh, hi, Phil. And, uh, uh, and I'm going, it's fucking Phil Lina, you know. And, and this guy comes over, this horrible-looking guy like a rat, and he went, oh, Phil, I'm so bored. And Phil goes, ah, fuck off, Johnny. Go on, pull a board. Go on. And, and, and he goes, oh, fuck off, Phil. And he goes away, and I said to Pete, who was that terrible guy? He said, oh, that's Johnny Rotten. I mean, Johnny what? He said, oh, he's all right, actually. Bit weird, but he's all right, you know. And, and that was my little introduction. And within a year of that, I was... Sounds came out with an ad saying, writers required no experience necessary. And I, and I zeroed in on no experience necessary uh, and, and wrote off and spectacularly failed to get anywhere. But sort of kept sending stuff until eventually they... Uh, I've mentioned it already. I'll mention it for the last time. My spectacular review of The Lurkers. Hey! And that was uh, how it all began. That's it. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll come back to him. We're going to come back to Phil, actually. Um, what's the next one? Oh, well, Kerrang! Actually, I was going to ask you that, uh, reviews. What about your first trip abroad? We were talking about this earlier, weren't we? Yes, yours, first, yours, Dave. first trip abroad. Okay, see if you can beat this. Mark and I often talk about this, the long winter evenings. First band trip you ever went, first band you ever went away with, where did you go? Which seems I w- so exciting. I went to, listen carefully, <laughs> Hamburg with the Little River Band. Whoa. Wait, okay, hang on, just... Mark just, Allen. I hear your Hamburg and Little River Band. I raise you Nazareth of the Isle of Man. Pretty good. <laughs> In a little tiny six-seater aircraft. A bit come, can you top that? I doubt it. This is going to become a Manny horrible Johnson. recurring theme. My first trip away was in the back of a transit van not to, with the, with the lurkers. to Bradford with the lurkers. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Bradford. Where the, it was a pub on a Sunday and it was empty. I remember the landlord came over and he goes, My name's Malcolm Fairplay. Fair play by name, fair play by nature. You'll be on for an hour, then I want you to fuck off. Good lads. <laughs> At least you got your opening and paragraph. Went, oh, all right, Malcolm. And I'm going. Any any birds? You know. No. So, did you get to, Did you get to stay in a hotel? We slept on the floor of the pub. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I so couldn't I, I wait remember, to get home and tell everybody all about it. I can remember the days when you're so thrilled to go anywhere where you get to stay in a hotel oh, yeah. with a nice bed or whatever. You travel halfway in the world to see the Little River Band. Our if there was a prospect pal, of a decent bed. Our old pal Paul Denoyer, who we worked on, well, I worked on the NME with, and, and uh, Q and Word and stuff, his first trip, which I think you might have told that story here, actually, was, was the da- with the damned, who set him on fire. Ooh. <laughs> he was sitting in a van going to the Isle of Wight, and Rats Gabies was sitting behind him. He, he thought he could smell lighter fuel, but he, he didn't know why. <laughs> and the next thing he could smell was a distinct smell of, of burning leather jacket and hair, and he realised it was him. He, right, he was right. on fire. But there's a, kind of, there's a serious point about those kind of, you know, you go to see you know, them in Bradford or whatever, that you realise the value, particularly in the days of the weeklies, of just colour. You know what I mean? It's the stupid stuff people said yeah. in the van or the people they met or the road signs they saw or whatever. Made half the story, didn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, um, uh, without it, it, there wasn't an awful lot to say quite often, but or you wouldn't even want to go. I mean, uh, uh, as a PR once, uh, I was looking after another hugely famous group called The Flies, and I, <laughs> I, I managed to persuade a writer on Record Mirror called Ronnie Gurr, who was from Edinburgh and still had a girlfriend in Edinburgh, but worked in London on the Record Mirror. I said, uh, I rang him up, we were pally, and I said, Ronnie, uh, fancy a drink tonight? And he went, sure, where, sh- where should we go? I went, how about Cinderella's in Edinburgh? He went, amazing, what, you can do that? So I got the flights booked, we got the car ready, let's fucking go. And he went, brilliant, and he went, hang on, why? Went, not, the, not the flies, I went, the flies <laughs> are playing at the Cinderella's. He went, oh, fucking fly. I hate the flies. I said, look, just a medium review, just they were pretty good. The crowd loved them. You'll see your bird. It'll be a top night. He went, all right, then, done. And, but and that, that did kind of go on a bit, didn't I know, it? It went on. And, well, like, you, having been in PR and journalism, right. you, you would have thought of a lot of that journalism as just marketing, <laughs> really, wouldn't you? But look, we have a picture of Kerrang up behind us yeah, yeah. when you join. The interesting thing about Kerrang, I, I think, when I was, I'd just left the enemy, is that, and you're very disparaging, quite rightly, about the enemy writers in your book, uh, uh, you know. And the Kerrang! writers did seem to be a gang. The rock world seemed to kind of stick together and be self-contained and, and quite defensive it, about it, what well, they... well, that was where the really big trips began. I mean, I'd been to Finland with Little Bob Story and I once got on a plane with Steve Hillage in Norway and uh, I once went to Germany to see Bobby Charlton give a gold record to status quo. <laughs> Say that, that again, sorry. I want, yeah, to, I, I, I want I, to hear I, that again. In about 1978, I went to Munich. Or, well, it wasn't even as good as Munich. It was like, you know, I don't know, somewhere I, you've never heard of. And in Germany, because Bobby Charlton was going to be presenting a gold record to the quo after the gig. I went, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds great, yeah. Uh, that's my weekend sorted. Fair enough. And, and at the end of it, 20 the glory days the review. Of the What's not to like? But, but the Kerrang! thing was bizarre because, or just the timing of it, because you have to remember, this is a world, you know, before all the multi-channels, before the social media, one radio, one national music station, Capital and the various commercial stations, nothing on television. I mean, not even on the tube or the whistle test very often. In Bob's days, maybe, but by the time you guys were there... Well, they didn't make videos, really. They're only just starting to, but anyway, go on. Exactly, but terminally unfashionable in the wake of punk. And suddenly this magazine comes along. And the, the, the name, by the way, came about because, as you say, uh, uh, people would have their kind of pet niche they'd write about on sounds and I wormed my way into the rock bit as one of the few guys that would have a heck of a time writing about Thin Lizzy or ACDC or whoever and just as you know Bushel used to answer the phone and go oi oi <laughs> we would answer the phone and go kerrang and they go go, yeah man you know and so when we did this one off pull out we called it for a joke Kerrang! And then cut to a few years later, it's a proper magazine in its own right. And what was happening by then was, you know, the CD revolution meant record companies were making tons of money. All these bands are album bands. They would make loads of money from the CDs and the albums and, of course, the tours. So the record companies had all this money to spend and nothing to spend it on. Enter Kerrang! To the point where you know, they'd ring you up and say, so uh, Journey uh, are coming over in the spring. Uh, they'll be doing um, uh, Groningen, uh, Nice. Uh, and you go, I see they're doing New York a month before that. They go, you want to go? We go, yes. And, but they'd uh, also be playing the Hammersmith Odeon. But there'd be no question if you go into that, because that's just across the road. Well, no, that was no, the there would be if there, if there was a party, absolutely. But we would have our own, honestly our own guest list. So there was the guest list, and then there was the Kerrang guest list. And they were so grateful because could you imagine ringing the NME in 1984 and saying, "We got Maiden doing the uh, Hammersmith Odeon. How many want to come?" Tumbleweed. Ring Kerrang. Yeah. There's 15 of us, some birds we just met in the pub, and our mate from uh, ACDC, the roadie, cool guy. And they go, yeah, bring them, bring them, bring them. Because 
It filled up all those spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It did. It, well, it defined a whole area, didn't it? I suppose that's the, that's the great, you know, remarkable success of Kerrang!, now, this is just another one I put in. This is a picture of Led Zeppelin, whatever it'd be, I don't know, with their private jet in about 74. But there were so many nice insights about Led Zeppelin, one of which was your theory about Robert Plant being embarrassed about his lyrics, which I thought was a really, really good point. No, no, he, did, did you go to the reunion concert? And, I did. And I did. What, was your, what did you think of it? I thought it was all right. I mean, I mean, you have to remember, I was doing my book on Led Zeppelin at the time, so I was very immersed in the whole thing. I've known Jimmy Page off and on for about 30 years, Robert, 20. I've done official work for them. You know, I know those people. And um, the great thing about Zeppelin in their prime was, was they really... And in their prime, they would, their gigs would, could be transcendent. A lot of improvisation and acoustic section. Other nights, they could be appalling. I mean, it really was a case of, wow, what's going to happen, you know? But by the time you got to the O2, this is this is three of them, and the son of the drummer. But it's 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 um, jukebox time. It's the hits. There's no improvisation. It, Robert was very much calling the shots. You know, he hates doing Stairway to Heaven. So that was like fifth number in. It should have ended the show. It was just dusted off as like fifth number in. And of course, it's the O2. It's, we live in a different century, a different planet. And I remember he's going, there's a lady. And there's people walking by me with trays of sushi. <laughs> uh, uh, Did you want the cappuccino? <laughs> uh, and there's Naomi, Naomi Campbell like doing a selfie with Kate Moss. And all that glitters is not gold. You know? And I just thought... Oh, this is interesting, but this is not Led Zeppelin in 1973 or whatever. Don't you sympathise with him? It, 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 the story, oh. the story goes that, that Plant is the guy who doesn't want to rejoin and so forth. And, you know, I sympathise with him. He's a singer, for God's sake. You know, it's a lot more difficult to stand out there it, and, and pretend to be 23 again. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and the man's, you know, well into his 60s. I mean, what man here, if there's any well into their 60s, wants to take their shirt off right now and ponce around at the lip of the stage? <laughs> Not many, I'll wager. Let, let alone... Also, you, you can't know, hit those top notes, can you? <laughs> you know, you just, it's impossible. Well, well, no, he can't. But he, he, here's the thing for Robert is that, you know, it was always the Jimmy Page show. And, and Robert's lyrics weren't written with a view to 40 years later. We'd all be going, that was a bit shit, wasn't it? <laughs> Hurry up, Harry, Harry. Dance the hoochie coo. You're not exactly Jagger, are you, mate? You know, uh, however, I mean, there's a funny story about Robert. Uh, my friend Kevin Shirley was, was Zeppelin's producer over the last decade or so and doing the re-releases of The Song Remains the Same and the DVD... And he said when they were doing Song Remains, originally a, sing, uh, a single vinyl album, now a double CD with all kinds of extras, he said Robert came in at one point and they were going through this bit from the show in 73 and Robert's going, baby, 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 baby. And Robert goes, could we get rid of the babies? <laughs> and Kevin goes, you're kidding. He goes, no, no, fuck's sake, I sound like a twat. You know. He said... Robert, this is 1973. We can't just get rid of the babies. <laughs> and he went, well, could we get rid of some of them? <laughs> he goes, how many have you got? And Kevin goes, nine. He goes, could we get rid of six? And Robert goes, three. Five. Four. <laughs> so they got rid of four babies. And Robert was like, okay, I can live with that. That's okay, you know. Yeah. And what I want to ask you about... It, it, and it's appropriate why we've got Led Zeppelin's picture up there. There's a lot about sex in this book, Mick. Mark doesn't want to talk about it because he's very embarrassed about it. <laughs> I'm not. Which is envious. <laughs> you, you seem to see, well, in the, old, in the old, you know, the old saying, more sex than a policeman's torch. Well, well uh, it, uh, if you, actually, there's probably only about half a dozen scenes like that in the book. And that does stretch over about 15 years. <laughs> so so it, perspective is everything. But, but also, I mean, again, a, a quick story. Um, you said the title was really long. Way too long. The designer had a hell of a time trying to fit it all on. And uh, then we're saying, you can't even read it, you know. But it was called Get Your Rocks Off. And uh, my wife and I, uh, my wife's 
nearly 20 years younger than me. So this is a weird era for her. She doesn't really care too much to hear a lot about it, which is fine. So he wrote a book about it. Well, luckily she... Luckily, she never really reads my stuff anyway. So we're driving into Oxford. She's driving, and I get an email from the publisher saying, OK, get your Oxford, it's good. You know, but how about if we add sex and excess, bust-ups and binges and all this? You, you were driving as you no, got No, no, Lin- Linda is driving. driving. Oh, right, I'm going... And I went, <laughs> you'll never guess what they've just said, you know. And I went, sex and excess. She went, yeah, sounds good, you know. And I went, but if they put that, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to have to write a few sex scenes. And she went, go for it. If that's what they want, you go for it. Oh, you hadn't written those already? No, no. no and I'm, I'm, and, really I, and I'm, thinking, the, I'm thinking... The book is full of monstrous shagging on it, virtually every page. There's a bit, actually, I was just talking about this earlier, just to check it with the lawyers. There's a bit where you give the impression that you've slept with Stevie Nicks. But I, 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 yeah, I will explain I, that I, further, I, but yeah. let, let me finish give him, the story. Give him the opportunity let, to respond, let me, please. Let, let me finish the story. So I'm thinking, wow, my wife's cool. I said, uh, so you've got no problem with that? She said, go for it, give them what they want. And I said, of course, if I write sex scenes, I will you know, probably have to be in one or two. And she went, no fucking way. <laughs> right, email them now. No way. But she doesn't read the books. <laughs> uh, Stevie Nicks, bless her heart. I mean, no, I didn't have sex with Stevie Nicks, but um, uh, and, uh, I see a lot of astonished faces out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, allow me to explain, because clearly, you know... I sound like I'm in denial. Um, it was 25 years ago. I was a lot younger, uh, hair, less weight, all this business. And I lived in Los Angeles briefly. And anyway, the Daily Mail, that august journal of record, asked me to go and do a kind of a lifestyles of the rich and famous at Stevie Nicks' house. And, and so I turn up, and um, I'll keep it really short to get to the bit. Uh, it, it, she's got this... You can imagine the place. You don't even need it to describe it. You, you know what it looks like. But there's a thousand candles in every room. Millions of them. I sat there thinking, who, who lights them? Who, who, who puts them out at night? You know, there must be just a roadie just for that, you know. Full time, absolutely. Um, hundred grand a year probably, you know. So um, anyway, at one point she says, I'll show you the house. So she shows me the bathroom with the gold fixtures, and she shows me this room and that room. And then she goes, and this is my bedroom. Chunk. And I went, oh, 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 come in. So I walk in behind her, and she goes, and this is my bed. And I'm like, I, I thought it was a bed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a four-poster, I believe. And, uh, yeah, and, and then loads of these... Uh, what they call stuffed animals, but, you know, toys, teddies and dolls, and I swear to God, they're all looking at me like, oh, yeah, Don Henley, Mick Fleetwood, Lindsay Buckingham, and you? I don't think so, my friend. And I'm going, I don't either. (laughs) And then she says... I'm going to take you to my secret space. Like, we, oh, no. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to tell you that, you know, something mar- something beautiful had happened that night. But mainly I was shitting it because I thought, if she lays a hand on me, I'm, I'm just going to... I was like a trembler. I was like a virgin touched for the very first time. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, she pulls this flap and the ceiling open and there's a ladder and don't forget she's wearing this tiny black cocktail dress really low cut immensely short and she's st- high heels killer heels and she starts to climb the ladder and she goes follow me and i'm like oh my god so i'm, I'm following up that and uh, i don't know how else to put it but here's her ass uh, and here's me and we're going to the top and i'm thinking this is just too far out and we get to the top, and it's a castle turret. And you can see out all over Los Angeles. And we sit down, and she's sitting like this. With her skirt's gone up to her chin. And, I, and I'm sitting there looking at the sky, you know. It's a beautiful view, Stevie. So this is your secret space. This is where I come when I want to be alone. Well, 
Yeah, I have one of those places. It's called the Lou, you know. Um, but eventually, she kind of, I think she sensed my uh, nervousness. Yes. And anyway, we came back down and uh, went back to her room, and she brought out this journal she'd written as a teenager with pressed flowers. And eventually, I fell asleep. Uh, I did. The candles had sucked all the oxygen out. We'd had some red wine, and it had been a long day, you know. And I listened. And I woke up on Stevie's chest, had long hair, and it was glued to her chest by saliva. I woke up like, oh, yeah. She goes, you're back with me. <laughs> and I said, I, I, oh, geez, big day, got to go. And that was that. Um, I still haven't got past the vision of, a, of Stevie Nicks' four-poster bed covered in gonks and teddies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Disapproving eyes. Was she, is she that one is of those brilliant. people? I, it sounds the way she, you've described her. The, the, and have you had experience of other sort of rock gods or whatever? They, they want a friend. I tell you what, it's very, very true. I mean, um, uh, now this sounds mad, but it's true. Uh, it, when I first met Jimmy Page in 1988... You know, he'd been a recluse for several years. He'd only just recently recovered from heroin in the last couple of years. A uh, very, very long addiction. And um, I was doing this weekly show on, on Sky called The Monsters of Rock. And one day I got a phone call from someone saying, does the name Jimmy Page mean anything to you? <laughs> and I just assumed it was one of you two taking the piss. Um uh, anyway, cut a long story short, he would like to meet you. He watches your show. He has a solo album coming out. Uh, uh, we want to do what you would know as an EPK. Uh, instead of doing lots of interviews, he'll do one interview with you, and we'll send that to various media outlets around the world. And so I, I got to know him, um, and it quickly became evident to me that Guy needed a friend. I mean... Uh, I thought once the business, we, we two or three weeks together, he showed me around the house, I met the family, and then one night I come home and there's a message on the answer machine saying, oh, Mick, it's Jimmy, do you want to go and see Alice Cooper tonight? And I'm thinking, not really. But I went, it's Jimmy Page. You know, so I rang him back, I said, what's this about Alice Cooper? He said, I've just found out he's doing a secret gig at the marquee. I really want to go. Do you want to come? And I went, all right then. So um, he turned up in a Rolls-Royce, chauffeur-driven. I was living in a tiny loft, one-bed apartment in Ealing. And, uh, all right, Jimmy, you know, and we got in. And there's a bucket of champagne. And, and we get to the marquee, and it's packed. But as we walk in, people literally, the seas pass. Jimmy Page and a bloke. You know. <laughs> And so we walk in, you know, and he's kind of oblivious. He doesn't sit, well, he must know, but maybe he's just got used to it over the years. So I'm going, Jesus, I've never found it so easy to get into a packed bar in my life. So we get a drink, go straight to the front of the balcony, and here's Alice. So I'm sta I have to stand up for this. I hadn't seen this one coming. Years of gigs, I, I assume the typical rock journalist pose, which is this. <laughs> can I get a drink yeah. Jimmy as soon as the guy starts he's like this <laughs> I'm going leave it out you know it's embarrassing really embarrassing stop it who do you now. think you are a rock star Jimmy Page or something <laughs> I thought any second now he's going to do air guitar <laughs> next thing there's a like a bit of liquid flicking on my ear or something. I realised someone's flicking beer at me. And I turn round, like, you know, I turn round. It's Lemmy. <laughs> and he goes... <laughs> and I went... I do meet him. And he went... And I went, Jimmy, would you like to meet Lemmy? He goes, yeah! And and uh, and this was repeated on other occasions. But they need somebody to kind of smooth their way, don't well, they? Well, until, they in, need until in the end, I mean, he, he, you know, all fun aside, he was very needy. 
And and he had nothing to fill his days, whereas I still had to work for him. There's a, a fantastic detail about the amount of money these guys have. Where he presses a button in the in the room and a, and a sliding panel moved back. Is that right? Is Jimmy Page's house, was it? Yeah. He, he's um, got some priceless artworks. Or... Well, we're walking around the house and uh, um, he's like, oh, here's my jukebox. You know, I said, oh, it's beautiful. You know, original Wurlitzer, 1952. I don't know what the details are, but whatever the best one is, he had it, you know. And um, and then it was suddenly like he said, um, "Does this sort of thing interest you?" And it was like in James Bond, there was, a panel came up from the arm of the chair, and he went, and the wall went, a huge wall all the way back, and then this wall behind came, like Thunderbirds, and on it, um, maybe five massive oil canvases really big and he goes do you like this and uh and i'm going wow by who who are they well i i I was too stupid to ask i mean you know i'm just thinking wow you know probably by jimmy page (laughs) well well, i'll tell you what it reminded me of it reminded me of hieronymus bosch or something because as i walked up to look at one particular painting it just looked like a huge scene of all these tormented souls in hell i mean that's actually what it looked like and i sort of i went uh, kind of like hieronymus bosch and he went kind of uh and i and i and i'm looking at all of them and i just ran out of i just cool wow far out i mean but can i get another beer you know <laughs> and then he went okay you know, and uh, and no more was said. And he took me outside, showed me the river, said, uh, "The you see the, um, the you know um, the London boat race people practicing up here." And he just kind of showed me everything. But and I felt I was actually not passing a test. I felt he was waiting for me to give some informed comment on but there's, something. There's a, there's a running theme through the whole thing. That's, that's part of it, actually. That, that people who've had that much excitement and often that much money and celebrity, etc., it's just really hard to fill their time. There's a bit where, right at the end, just a tiny detail where Dave Mustang, of what would that be? Um, uh, Megadeth. Megadeth, sorry, of Megadeth, has taken up skydiving. <laughs> that's the new thing. So what are you up to at the moment? Uh, he's, maybe he's off the sauce, maybe he's off the drugs, I don't know, but he's taken up skydiving. And it's that idea that you've just got to keep your life at a billion percent. Now, he, I think it's really interesting. He'd just come out of rehab. You know, he was he, he was a terrible heroin addict, cocaine nutcase, fired everybody in the band a million times. And he came out of rehab and I went to have lunch with him. And it was like, I'm doing skydiving. You've got to come with me. It's really cool. I'm thinking, no. He's like, I now do jujitsu twice a day. He told me he was on a sex diet. No yellows, man. Only egg whites and this and that and only green vegetables and, you know. And it was just, okay, Dave, chill, chill. A sex read a, read sex a book, man. You know, huh? Sex for breakfast, sex for lunch with vegetables on the side. <laughs> what, sex for supper? And what is it? I don't know what it was. Well, it was just, just you, eat, you eat these sex. certain things because so you can have sex multiple times. To make you more potent, I Oh, think. okay. And he was into magic. He actually uh, uh, wrote out what they call a sex hex for me. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. uh, and you needed a virgin parchment and uh, a, preferably a hair from her head or, uh, you know, even better pubic hair or even a cigarette she'd smoke. That's what he said. And, 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 and oh, some other bits. Oh, he had to draw a penis on it. And then you had to draw a vagina. I'm having lunch, you know. And... <laughs> you see... This has to be better than interviewing orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't have got that know, kind of, you know. I know, that's, the, I know the, the interesting thing about these guys is that they kind of live completely on the surface, don't they? You yeah, yeah. They, yeah. All I, these people. Well, that's why I like they them. They don't hide anything about themselves. They, no, yeah. they, they weren't conflicted about wanting to be very, very rich, wanting to be very, very famous. Um, and in a way, it sort of prefigured the lad culture in the sense that they were unashamedly having a good time at a time in the 80s when pop had become um, 
somewhat inverted and very self-conscious. And in this country particularly, anybody that expressed a desire to be big in America was immediately deemed suspect, you know. Move on to the Def, uh, the Def Leppard picture, because I think we're going to miss Iron Maiden, because this is, this is precisely what you're talking about, I think, isn't it? This is the particular period. Yeah. Def Leppard would be, what, is it 88, 87? This would be yeah. 80... Well, the year, World Tour was two years, 87, 88. Unbelievable. And I was, that, that's a moment when, when people could sell the most colossal quantities of, of, um, of, of albums. I, and, I, and the I, money they made. There's a story about the guy, which, which is the guy who goes to the shop and doesn't realise he's bought a watch or whatever. Which one was uh, that? Phil there and Steve there. Steve's now dead. Yeah. Um, they got so pissed, they went out and bought um, uh, Rolexes. Uh, and, and Phil woke up the next morning with a... $20,000 Rolex on his arm and had no recollection of buying it. Uh, so he quit drinking, actually, and never did again. Steve doubled down and got two Rolexes, you know. Um, but we would travel on their private jet. Um, uh, uh, I remember one night backstage, this, this cartoon character photographer turned up and he was literally swinging the camera around his neck as, just one more, just one more. And, and they had to hold up these platinum albums. And the, the, why he was there was to record the fact that this album, Hysteria, 87, and the pre, their previous album in America, Pyromania, 83, they had both, just at that moment, sold more than 7 million copies each in America. And they were the first album in history, uh, first band in history, including the Beatles, oh, yeah. to have two albums sell more than seven million copies in America. Uh, and they were like, you know, hurry up, mate, you know. And 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 he did his stuff, and they went on stage, and uh, uh, and, and were just really fabulous, young, colourful band, but all from Sheffield, and and extremely down to earth. Uh, and just having an incredible time. But also, these guys lucked into a period of time that the Beatles and so forth didn't luck into, which was the late 80s and early 90s, when people made a fortune. Huge distribution. Well, CD, and, uh, yeah. twice the price of record had ever previously been, selling twice the quantities. Absolutely. I mean, Hysteria had 12 tracks and eight singles from it. <laughs> uh, all of them hits. Um, including, you know, an American number one, an American number two. Uh, it was just a phenomenal time. So I wasn't on the whole tour, of course, but I was taken out five different times throughout the course of that tour to Holland, Italy, Britain, of course, America three times, uh, Boston, Denver, Portland. You know, I was at the first date of the tour and the last date of the tour. Because they just could, and it was normal in those days. It wasn't just me; there were, you know, other people as well. And 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 you know, I was still a teenager when I was writing about punk bands, and a lot of them were my age or even a little older. And um, unless you did interview Johnny Rotten or, or Joe Strummer or someone actually interesting, Tom Verlaine or somebody, they really weren't very interesting to speak to. A lot of them, you know, I'd. I'd lived in a hippie house from the age of 17 with a load of hippies that were in their mid-twenties who'd been turning me on to Captain Beefheart, Miles Davis, Ornette Coleman, you name it. Um, and they're talking to me about, yeah, it's cracking kids and they can't get a job. And, and it was just, you know, because they'd read the other more popular punk guys talking about that stuff. So it was just very tedious. And then suddenly you're in the back of a limousine with Phil Lynott. Go on, have a line. Have another one. Have a board. You know, there just was no comparison. And so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, because because there weren't many people interested in writing about it, I kind of made the most of that and just just really had a wonderful time. Guns N' Roses is a a fantastic section of the book. And uh, Axl Rose finished up writing a song which contains the words Mick Wall... From Kerrang, isn't it? Is it from Wig Wall from Kerrang? And, and along with Bob, Bob, Bob Guccione and... Junior, yeah. Um, Circus Magazine. He just has a list of people he decided he hates and incorporates them in the song. Mick Wall of Kerrang, you can suck my fucking dick. Was the actual nice, poetry. Yeah. Was that... that well, I, I will have on my grave, you know. Um, or at my wedding, they brought it out, you know. Uh, Serious question. Do they ask permission to use your name in the... 
No, no, he didn't. And America being as litigious yes. as it is, I, I was um, <laughs> advised at the time that I could sue him and make some money. Um, and uh, there's a bit of me that wishes I had because it probably would have been quite a lot of money. Uh, but at the time, I, I just uh, I was above it all. You know, I, by then I was disappearing up my own rectum. It was the early <laughs> 90s. I knew more than them. How dare they? And so anyway, you, went, you went through that period? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was the... <clears throat> it's always the same, isn't it? I was their go-to guy in the early years, the first, uh, one of the first people to write about them, and then I happened to move to Los Angeles just as they were making it. So, I mean, Axel's brother, brother would uh, often stay over if he was in town. Uh, Slash would come and stay when he was in London. Um... Because at that point, I was the guy hanging out with the big famous bands, and they were still a club band. And then they got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but to their credit, they, they never really changed, except for Axel. Um, uh, uh, but on a serious note, I mean, the thing about Axel Rose is, you know, I think it goes beyond the crazy rock star thing. I think the man genuinely has some problems. I think he may be autistic. I say that now because my youngest daughter is autistic and I know a lot about that stuff. And he just ticks every box. Um, what was it you did to, to incur his wrath? And did you ever hear them play that song and hear him singing the words Mick Wall from Kerrang! in front of 90,000 people? Oh, I wish I had. Very weird experience. No, no. Um, uh, I got a phone call after midnight one night. Hey, Mick, it's Axe. That's how he'd start. I've just been reading some shit in Kerrang! And you got to come over here. we got to set the record straight. And, and and it was Vince Neil of Motley Crue had had a fight with Izzy Stradlin of Guns N' Roses over a mud wrestler from the Tropicana. Ah, this is a, so this it was a cartoon it, word. It's not orchestral maneuvers <laughs> in the dark. So it was quite an important story. Um, <laughs> and... But in that, at that moment, an interview with Axel Rose was gold dust. You couldn't really get it, you know. So I, I got up and uh, drove over to his flat. And we sat there till three or four in the morning as he went, as I'm walking through the door, he's already begun. You know, I'm like, wait, 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 you know, tape recorder. Say that again. As, as he opens the door, he's going, that fucking Vix Neil, I'm going to kill that motherfucker. Guns or knives. I don't give a shit, man. I'm going to kick his ass. I want you to write that in the magazine. We're gonna go, uh, Guns or knives. <laughs> Guns or knives. I don't care, motherfucker. And anyway, so I'm taping all this. I said, so you're really going to kill Vince? I'm going to punch his plastic face, man, until it comes down and his ass. And it just went on and on and on and on and on and on and on. A couple of weeks later, I'm transcribing it, and it just looks quite heavy. <laughs> and, uh, and I think, ah, he's going to regret this. So I rang him up, and I recorded this conversation as well. And I said, uh, Axel, I'm just reading this stuff, and if you want to go for it, that's absolutely fine. But let me read you a few lines here, because it does sound quite heavy. And I read him the worst bits, and, and he just laughed and swore some more and said, I stand by every word. So we printed it on the cover of Kerrang! And three days later, I got a phone call from his PR saying, <clears throat> Axel never said those things. Um, he wants the tape. Uh, he wants an apology. And you better make it fast because Vince Neil's gone on record saying he's going to kill him. <laughs> Vince had gone on MTV and said, I'll meet you anywhere you like, Axel. We'll meet in the parking lot at Tower Records at 6 p.m. tonight. How about that? And what you've got to remember is Axel is just a little guy. I mean, he, 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 he's one of these little guys who really his bark is worse than his bite. He, there's no kind of musculature. You know, he doesn't work out. He's quite a weed. Um, Vin, Vince Neil is this real tough Mexican kid from the barrio. You know, of all the people you wouldn't want to pick a fight with. Or say guns or knives, whatever you want. Vince like, both. <laughs> Axel's like, I never fucking said it. It was the limey journalist. He's an asshole. You know. The, 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 the traditional view of rock journalists is, is that you, you twist their words and, you know, you make them look bad. In my experience, it's exactly the opposite. That half the time you're making them look more interesting than they are. Absolutely. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. I used to love that thing you did in Q. Who the hell do they think they are? 
um, uh, uh, I've forgotten his name, the guy Tom that you Hibbert. Tom Hibbert, yeah. Tom Hibbert, the master. And one of his great tricks was he literally would give you a, a, a verbatim transcription and you could actually see how stupid so many of these people really are. We would tidy it up to make it an entertaining feature so you didn't have to read this ludicrous waffle that most of them come out with. But Tom would just let it run. Yeah, well, it was the bald thing with Tom. Just leave it there. That's what made it funny. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and it sounds easy, but it's not. And when Tom finally did it, to me it was revelatory, you know, because for years we'd all been covering up for them basically and and because that's the narrative we felt the reader needed because i thought we should get a, just a quick glimpse of uh, of van Halen because they're just so fabulously fascinating and diamond dave as you referred to yep. david is a really interesting character because he's actually the son of a multi-millionaire uh, eye surgeon, am I right? Doctor Roth. Doctor Roth. Doctor so, Roth. So that's not the normal. I mean, we've come quite a way here from Axel Rose, you know, who's really, really right. working class. Right. This guy's like a multi-millionaire son D- from, D- from Florida or somewhere. Was he from? No, um, it's a southern state, wasn't it? Uh, no, actually, um, he was born in Boston, but they then moved further out west coast because, to be honest, that's kind of where the money was for a doctor of uh, Doctor Roth's caliber and his kind of business, you know, very rich people. And um, so so David Lee Roth, people always used to talk about him as a himbo, you know, this kind of, you know, if Marilyn Monroe was a blonde bombshell, Roth was the male bombshell equivalent, you know, and, and physically for sure in his prime. But uh, he actually came from a very privileged background, very highly privately educated, fantastic reader, Mountaineer extraordinaire, martial arts expert. But still incredibly hardworking. It's quite interesting because, you know, he's from that really rich family, but they played six gigs a day, didn't they, at the beginning? Well, Am it, I right? Well, superbly ambitious. I mean, that's the thing, you know. He's he, a politician. He, he, well, you know, I mean, he once sat... I once did an interview with him that lasted for 12 hours. <laughs> from midnight till midday the next day. And he's still saying, let's have a nightcap. And I'm going... I'm dead. And, and he was saying at that point, you know, I could be president of the United States. He, I, I actually interviewed him uh, for Sounds at the time of their second album. I was sent to Newcastle. They thought I would be unusual. You were off with the lurkers. You just, yeah. Otherwise yeah. you would have... He snuck in there. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to see them, and then I was installed in a suite at the Gosforth Park Hotel outside Newcastle. Very nice hotel. And he came in, and he, he wasn't interviewed. He just entertained you. Right. He right. just performed for right. two hours. Right. You didn't, you didn't need to ask him a no. question. Well, you know, he, 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 was the, he was the first representative I'd come across of a completely new sort of rock star. You know what I mean? He was just all presentation. Uh, Brilliant uh, actor. Absolutely. First time I ever met him, he walked in the room, and it was, you know, you, can, you will believe a man can fly. Yeah. You know, he... He, he almost hovered. He did not stop talking, but this hugely fast, articulate level, very funny, but you're laughing at a joke that he's already three jokes further yeah, on yeah. with, you know. Um, and he brought all that to the music of Van Halen. So we went from this kind of sluggish, uh, by the end of the 70s, sluggish kind of zap- Sabbath kind of thing, to this, at the time, futuristic, all guns blazing. He said to me, when we play, he goes, I imagine it's the Old West and we're circling the wagons and the Indians are coming down the mountain and I'm the last guy standing and i got a gun in both hands. Like, shh, shh, shh. And you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. I, I mean, in terms of copy and in terms of characters, because rock music, you know, for me, what made it so brilliant, particularly in those days, were there were so many characters and, and if you didn't always like the album or you didn't always get every part of why certain fans, uh, you know, idolised them so much, you just had to spend a little bit of time with them and they would tell you their story and that in itself was, was worth the price of admission. Well, we've probably only got time for one more, I think, but we've got to, we can't end this without having uh, not only the mighty uh, Black Sabbath, but also your stuff about um, Sharon Osbourne and Don Arden, her dad. It's, it's just fascinating. But just quickly about Ozzy, there's a scene in it where you're having Sunday lunch with the Osbournes. Yeah. 
And yeah. everyone's drinking pints of beer. He's drinking pints of white wine. Of, of white wine. Um, and and so I say pints in the plural, but several pints of white wine. I it's think, it, I think in the end about six or seven pints. Well, I was on to my second pint of wine. So he must have been six or seven, you know, because I, I, clearly I've got more class, you know. Um, you were savouring the bouquet. I, <laughs> <laughs> um... I got hired by Sharon to write his official biography. This is 30 years ago, long before the Osbournes. And um, we kept setting up interviews, and he would either turn up pissed, or he just wouldn't turn up at all, or some other excuse and another excuse. And eventually, um, Sharon said, look, just come round. They had a house in Berkeley Square at the time. She said, just come round the house on Sunday, have Sunday lunch, and, and you'll do the interview with Ozzy, and we'll just get it done. Was went, in Berkeley Square? At that time, they were. This is 85. Yeah, yeah. Um, classing up the neighbourhood. Bertie Wooster. <laughs> 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 All right, Bertie. Lord Lucan. <laughs> Lord Lucan. <laughs> he was the other guy at lunch, actually. Yeah. But, uh, so what I hadn't anticipated was that as I, when I turned up, Ozzy would actually be in the kitchen in his pinny making the lunch. And the other thing was he was always on the wagon or he was off the wagon and he's on the wagon. And that means Sharon is like this. And anyway, I'm like, all right, Ozzy. Yeah. Potatoes, meat. And then Sharon says, right, I'm taking the kids out to Hyde Park while you finish up lunch back in an hour. And, uh, and he's literally pinny, you know, potato in his hand. And he just freezes. I go, you're right, Ozzy. I go, shut up. And he just holds like And he hears her walk to the door. He hears the steps up the garden path. He hears the car door shut. And, vroom, and off it goes. And as it goes, he goes, Thank fuck for that. Would you like a drink? And I said, uh, have you got any wine? He went, oh, yeah. And he pulled out a bottle of white wine. He was too impatient to corkscrew it. He got his thumb and just pushed the corkscrew. And he went... Pint glass, pint glass. There you go, mate. And I went, cheers. Nice. He went. Honestly, six or seven of these, and he's getting quite drunk. And get away. And I, and I'm thinking. My main concern is when Sharon comes home, I'm like the smoking pistol, aren't I? I tried to stop him! You know, uh, anyway, she walks in and she looks and she's seen it so many times. But I am standing there with a pint of wine. So, it wasn't me. And, and uh, so we, they lay out the... And it's a very elaborate lunch. You know, all kinds of vegetables, melted cheese on the potatoes. And it all gets dished up. There's Sharon, the nanny, two children. Jack hadn't been born yet. And me and Ozzy opposite each other. And literally, the food is dished and we're all about to begin. And Ozzy literally is his plate and he does this. Starts to snore... Gravy bubbling round his nose. <laughs> and I went, is he all right? And she went, fuck him. Pass the peas. Lifted <laughs> <laughs> up by the hair. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, we have the whole lunch. <laughs> and uh, uh, right at the end, as we're now putting the dishes away... I really enjoyed that. <laughs> so that was Sunday lunch. With in the end, she put him to bed and she said, look, you're never going to get this. Tell me what you want. I'll give you what you need for the book. And, and that's what we did. So you wrote his biography and then read it to him. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I'd it, imagine. I'd yeah. Imagine Have we got time for a very quick bit of Sharon and, and Dom? Because there's a bit we describe, well, somebody describes Sharon, who, who's, of course, the daughter of Don, who was the manager of ELO and famously held, who is it, Stigwood out the window by his ankles. But Sharon uh, is described by someone as, as Don Arden in a skirt. That, that was her. And they sued each other. Am I right? Didn't they sue each other? No, she, she, she was sued by him for stealing Aussie off him. Is that right? 
Uh, she was one. described as uh, Don in a skirt by her brother David. Oh, that's nice. Um, that's not, in yeah. nearest and dearest. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing family. And um, uh, he sued her because he managed Ozzy after Sabbath. But he wasn't. He also managed typical Don. He managed Ozzy and Sabbath, you know, and uh, conflict of interest. So Sharon stole in and Nick Dozzy, basically. And then so Don sued Sharon. Sharon sued Don. Uh, and then it got nasty. Um, <laughs> violence, physical threats. He said he wanted to see her dead. He would dance on her grave. Um, she saw him in a restaurant once and went over and picked up the bowl of suit and put it right over his head. Um, it, it just went on for years and years and years. And then... Um, in 2001, I got a phone call one night saying from Sharon saying, um, would you like to... And when, when Sharon really wants something, she talks to you like this, darling. You know I love you. And she said, you know I love you. Would you do a book on my daddy? And I went, I thought you hated him. No, no, darling. That was a long time ago. We're, we're reconciled. So I went, sure, sure, you know. And uh, anyway, I ended up ghosting Don's memoir. And um, wow, I mean, you know, this kind of comes full circle because one of the reasons I love talking to the rock guys is the great stories, the great characters. And Don was a great character. I mean, he'd, 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 he'd started out as a performer. He was one of the original black and white minstrels. He'd been on, the, on tour with Tommy Cooper. He'd done the, hot, the London Palladium. Uh, and then he ended up managing Little Richard, um, Bill Haley, Eddie Cochran, The Animals, The Small Faces, blah, 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 blah. But, of course, he was the original gangster. I mean, his driver was Peter Grant, who went on to manage Led Zeppelin. Don always carried a gun. He said to me, because he would talk like that. He'd kind of, he said to me his hero was Jimmy Cagney. Uh, and before he would go into a meeting, he'd go into the loo and look in the mirror and get into character like Cagney. And then he said, I'd walk in there. And he goes, and I'd slap my gun on the table. And he goes, it's amazing how that gets their attention. <laughs> and if that didn't work, I'd smash the joint up and leave. After that, they'd give me anything I wanted. You know, and, uh, and I was going, more, more, you know. And um, um, so he was a tremendous character. The only time I, I, I nearly slipped up with him was because we got to know each other over weeks and months of sitting around eating toast in the morning and going for lunch and that. We'd go for, he lived in a flat in Park Lane and we'd go for lunch at this very posh pub around the corner. And again, it was a bit like Jimmy Page, but in a different way. It would be packed. You could never get a seat. But Donna was going a bit deaf. As soon as he started out with, I bloody told Stigwood as I hung him from the balcony. I said, next time, you're a dead man. And, and we'd have a seat, you know. <laughs> and I go, Don, keep it down a little bit. What's wrong with you, you ponce? I, 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 I took it... This is over 12 years ago, and I had a, a, a phase of buying clothes from uh, second-hand stores. And I, and I had this, I thought, very funky jacket. And one day in a, in a pause, he said to me, I turned around, he was wearing it. He's walking around the room, it's way too small for him. And he's going, what a piece of shit. He goes, when this book comes out, we're going to go on tour. He goes, I'm going to take you to see my tailor because I can't have you walking around with me looking like a knob. <laughs> Absolutely, Don. Anything you like, mate. Have we got to have a worst, worst band you've ever seen? Quickly. Very quickly. quickly. The worst band. You've seen a lot of great ones. We've got our worst bands, obviously, but you go ahead. Oh, I, I think... Um, I was once sent... There's a lot, actually. There's a lot. But just... Just one. It's going to have to be one. I was have, sent have to... to hurry you. I was sent to review Tangerine Dream, Ooh. who I'd bought Phaedra in the 70s. You know, Tang's man. 1995. I'm sent to see them, and I'm so sorry, but it was so boring. These old men standing at their little... It was not... The craft work, they ain't, you know. And it was... And that's the worst band you ever saw. 
they you must have. No, no, I'm sure, I'm sure they were worse. That heap. You never saw Dogs de Moor? No. Oh, no, no. Not only did I see Dogs de Moor, I put them on the cover of Kerrang! <laughs> oh, it's your fault. It's your fault. Uriah Heap were the first band I ever saw. Uh, the, the, the guy at school took me, had a spare ticket. I knew nothing. And I went and thought, wow, I've never seen a band. Amazing. And then the next day he lent me very heavy, very humble. Very and therein ended my interest. <laughs> Killed it. In your eye heat. Well, look, thanks so much. Um, now, we're going to take Corvinar's uh, break. And Mick is going to has huge numbers of copies of this and other books he has written outside. And we'll be very keen to sign anybody. I will. Uh, who's, uh, anyone who's uh, bought a copy. So please don't get one. It's a fantastic book. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much, Mick. And we'll return in 10 minutes with ten Peter Dogger. 10 minutes, yeah. Mick Wall, ladies and gentlemen. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 